Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Outspoken, controversial, opinionated, describe Joe Brawley and you often lapse into cliché, something the man himself is never guilty of. Three decades in the public eye, first as a swashbuckling All-Ireland winner with Derry, then as a pundit, columnist and campaigner on the GAA and beyond, Joe has entertained, infuriated, but always followed his own rule. Whether people agree or disagree with you, the whole point, he once said, is to create debate. Joe, thanks for joining us. Swashbuckling. So, do you like that one? Great word. <laughs> you never hear anybody think. using that, really. It's what, Errol Flynn and people like that. Aye, aye, that's Days right. gone by. Aye, and green tights. And the... <laughs> we recorded this interview, Joe, um, at the height of championship season. Um, do you miss the thrill of the big days in the, in the TV studio and that pulpit you had for so long uh, on those big championship Sundays? Yeah, it was... I suppose I get so used to the public conversation and then you, you, you forget that there are a million people watching and later on that day or the next morning it's being debated on the radio and you're getting texts flooding in and people are talking about it. And I do miss that being effortlessly part of the national conversation. And uh, it was a lot of fun in that as well. Mm. Uh, I mean, and... I recall after the uh, the time I went after Tyrone for the cynical fouling, uh, the day that Sean Kavanagh dragged down uh, Conor McManus. And th- I think there was another game on afterwards, or certainly there was a double header the next day, and by the time we got out of Croke Park, the place was empty. And I didn't realise there was going to be such an enormous fuss over this. And then, you know, the next day it was on all the chat shows, all the radio shows. I mean, this had... Was, uh, David Hickey texted me to say that he'd been in a pub in Kerry and that, that, that after I'd finished, there was a standing ovation in the pub. And the next day when I arrived down, a Garda van pulled up and about 20 guards got out and got selfies. And, <laughs> you know, and I'd say I loved all that. It was great fun. Mm. And, and, uh, and, and an important point. Uh, and uh, so it was... Certainly no bother for me to be part of that public conversation. And obviously since I've since uh, I've been out of RTE, we've been in pandemic, I think, for for both those seasons. Yeah. Well that's correct, for both those seasons. So it hasn't it hasn't been quite the same, but uh, I know that I missed that. It was uh, you know it, it it was something that I rose to and I felt excitement around. Uh, from the very first time I was asked, I mean, I was asked when I was just finishing off playing football for Derry. And uh, initially I thought it was just such fun to be on telly, like a child. And I probably never lost that 
you know, feeling of excitement mm. coming into the studio and, you know, effortlessly being part of that public conversation. Because you didn't have to try to make your point. Your point was made and it was everywhere. I mean, Paddy Heaney, the journalist, told me that at half time, the journalists in Croke Park would rush into the TV to see what we were saying on the TV. And, uh, you know, and I, I was conscious of that and enjoyed it very much. It's funny, you should, you, the, the, the Tyrone one, and, and, and they're all preserved in YouTube for, for posterity <laughs> there, you know. <laughs> you, if you want to go back and look. Schools. I, was, I was going to schools, you know, and the, the whole place would explode at uh, an ovation when you arrived <laughs> there, you know, to, to, you know, because it was crack and it sort of, it must have appealed to people. When you, se when you sense of separate them from the controversy of the time and look at them now, they're exhilarating to watch. You know, there, there's a kind of, uh, maybe it's because you don't get people speaking like that on TV that often. And it's still, but there's, there's an exhilaration about it and you can sense, you know, that the rest of the studio is, you know, in your thrall. And that, but you yourself, I wonder, did you feel that, did you get a high from it? Did you get a, that thrill of, no, 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 in those moments when you were really animated, the bit between your teeth? Well, no, not so much. I was just very, I think, completely unselfconscious about it. Don't forget, I'm a barrister by trade, and so my life is a life of the mind and a life of public address. You know, and that matchless excitement when the judge says, Mr. Brawley, are we ready to swear a jury? We are. You know, you might have a packed courtroom depending on the case. You know, the tension is matchless. The stakes are high. In fact, you know, not life or death. We don't mm. have the death sentence anymore. But you know, someone might be going to prison for the rest of their life. And, uh, and so that's, that's the sort of environment that I operate in. And therefore, the confidence to, to, to express yourself and to know where, you know, I suppose to know where the lines were, but also just to let, let it go, let it go. Because in the end, you're, you're talking about football. This is our entertainment, our fun, our joy. And if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. You know, if, it's, mm. if, if it wasn't the yellow card, Nobody dies, and uh, and I think what happened ultimately was that you know a, a, a new head of sport came in who had a very um, civil servant's view of how it all ought to be done, a very prescriptive view, and very quickly I was made feel uncomfortable. Very quickly, this what used to be in the previous heads of sport, we had a terrific relationship and still keep in contact. You know, often often would text each other and all that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, I just suppose some people just, they're allergic to other people. And I think he was allergic to me. I think it was just a sense of, look, this is only going one way. And uh, it was very disappointing to me, I think, and very hurtful to me as well, but that, that, that's life. Separating from the personalities and what, who said what to who, do you feel that, you know, you had, the viewers had, had enjoyed you, you know, disagree with you and agree with you or whatever over the course of the years, that RTE had, had you know, enjoyed having you and that everything had been fine. And then suddenly the, 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 wind, the direction of the wind changed, maybe in a general, at, at, I, I, a, at I, a greater I, I, level I, I, in terms I, I, of discourse that you can't say things about people or you can't, this idea of personal criticism and yeah, that you paid, I mean, the, after, after being, after, after benefiting for so long and, and bringing good things to, the debate for so long, the wind changed and you paid the price. Well, I suppose I, I learned as I was going along as well. I mean, I made some mistakes, you know, I made a, a very hurtful comment about Marty Morrissey once, which I've always regretted and I apologise. Actually, I went to Marty personally and apologised for it. And, uh, you know, Marty always says I turned him into a sex symbol with that comment. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it was... Uh, it, it, so that was, a, that was a very good learning lesson for me. You know, I just 
I'd just given the kidney. All of a sudden, I was a national saint. You know, people were saying, oh, and, uh, and I think probably around about that time, I started to get a bit carried away with myself, even though I was thinking, look, don't get carried away yeah. with yourself, you know. But I was being treated almost, you know, like a saintly figure in the aftermath of that. And uh, so I, that was something that I really regretted. You know, I, I shouldn't have said it, and it was uh, off the cuff, and it was cruel, and shouldn't have said it, as I said, you know. And I, I made up with Marty. You know, Marty's great fella, he's mm. great fun. And, uh, and uh, anyway, so that's my, my, my greatest regret is turning Marty Morrissey into a sex symbol. <laughs> but thereafter, I mean, my contributions, I mean, I would never have said anything defamatory because I understood the law well. And uh, I, uh, you know, pitched myself into it. I enjoy the game. I love the game. And I think that anyone in a bar can analyse a game. I think that what's happened now is that there's a lot of pseudoscience, which, in, which really is nonsense. So we see, for example, a lot of these coaches who have big reputations, who go around serially losing in every county they go to, you know, um, turning, the, turning the, the football of that county into a dire spectacle. They've serially failed. And yet there's a certain convention out there to treat them with great respect and say, well, you know, this is how we must, you know, approach these things. Play the game formulaically. Talk about the game formulaically. And the interesting thing is teams like the Dubs don't do that. Personal responsibility with the Dubs. You know, they thrive. They, they work on their individual skills. We see how distinctive they are on the field. You know, we see each player's personality in the field, the way they'll do the unexpected, you know, the way they'll be able to turn a game because someone will have a moment of spontaneity. Real sport. Because the real joy of sport in the end is that spontaneity, that, that sense of, I mean, you're a Donegal man. Mm. I mean, the 2014 All-Ireland semi-final against Dublin. It's just like, mm. I mean, the, the tumult, the joy of that. I mean, I can remember standing up, because I, I had predicted that morning mm. that Donegal would beat them. Everybody thought the Dublin team was unbeatable. And David Hickey, the great David Hickey, had given his prophecy that Dublin will win five All-Irelands in a row. And it really looked as though they would. They'd been cantering through everybody. And that day was just one of the great sporting events I've ever been at. And I can remember saying at halftime, you know, the nightmare is upon them. The nightmare is upon them. And you knew that it wasn't going to let up because yeah. that Donegal team with Jim, Jim had that mess, messianic, messianic quality where if you know Jim, like if Jim is crossed with you or anything, his eyes are blazing and he's a big guy. Mm. Uh, I mean, Kevin Casty told me, and Kevin Casty's not afraid of anybody. He said the scariest thing that ever happened to him was Jim took him to task in the middle of the of a Donegal team meeting about fouling inside the scoring zone. And he said the saliva was coming over his face and he said he felt fear passing over him. And Kevin Casty's not afraid of mm. anything. And Jim had that messianic quality that 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 turned that Donegal team into something serious. You knew when you went to see them playing, whether you liked it or not, particularly whenever they were playing against the team who were trying to play man-to-man -man football like the Dubs that day, that it could be something very special. Do you have to have anger, a, a bit of a streak of anger or a streak of um, ability to, to recognise perceived wrongs or, or, or write them to you know, dip your arrows in poison at time and not be afraid to be a good pundit to stick the knife in at times? Well, I mean, 
you know, I was very angry about that whole phase of cynical foul, and I've, I'm, I'm, I'm very angry about the inequalities in, 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 in the championship structures, for example, you know, where we allow a team like Leitrim to be publicly humiliated like that, and the good people of Leitrim to be publicly humiliated, you know, and, uh, you know, I, I think that the essential thing, and it's not really for me to say, but people respond to television in the end. Garrison Keeler talked about radio and television. It's about false friendship. It's about people saying, I'm comfortable with this. Mm. You know? And some people have a personality that the viewer responds to. It's not a matter for me to say, but I always just let myself be who I am and let it go as though I were in the bar talking about it. You know, you're standing in the bar talking about a game, you know, with me. That's exactly what I'll be talking about when I'm on the telly. And people always respond to that because they feel it's real. Mm. It's not, you know, you're not sort of going through management speak. You know, everything's reduced to management speak now. I mean, politicians, what are they talking about? No one ever says anything. On television now, I mean, you watch RT now, it's like a morgue. No one's saying anything. You know, it's formulaic, it's note-driven, it's, you know, yeah, and what you say, and, and it's safety first, and it's sugary. But in that sugariness, there's a danger that we're losing free speech and that we're losing that sense of reality. I mean, sports punditry now, interestingly, you watch the NBA, basketball in America, they really let it go. They have fun and they let it go and it's personality driven. You know, they have their statistics. They're very knowledgeable, the people who are, who are involved with it. But there's a sense of you can connect with them. And I, I watch the, the finals and I have to say they're very mm. enjoyable and the punditry is very enjoyable. I mean, you you come a good game and you come in at half time now to a GA pundit race like Oh Jesus, you know, I'll do something else, you know, really. And you know, it's your turn now, it's your turn now, it's your turn. And we're going to look at some incidents from the first half now. You know, in the end, it's our fun and entertainment, it's our recreation, it's what we love. Can I ask you what, one last is I want to move on. Taking it far too seriously. Can I ask you what what about the accusation then that the game had simply moved on from a player of your generation, that they needed younger guys who'd, who'd played in, in a more modern era, and that maybe you'd, ha you'd done your time, you'd had your time, and it was time That's a matter for them. I mean, I coach, I've, I coach underage, I've been coaching underage in the club now through to the current under-20s for the last, I suppose... 12, 13, 14 years. You know, we've won underage championships. We work a lot in short kickouts, long kickouts. You know, we work a lot in track defending. You know, we incorporate modern developments. Yeah. You know, we look at what works. I mean, I've spent time with the Dublin. I've spent time with Jim Gavin. You know, um, spent time in Cross McGlen watching their methods. Um, you know, and I'm a student of the game. I'm fascinated by the game. And Do I you love, reject that and suggestion? And I love the game. Well, it's, you know, it's nonsensical. Okay. You know, I mean, anyone can... You know, I mean, anyone can see what's happening in a game, really. And, uh, you know, if you had some insights to bring or something interesting to say, great. And if people responded to that, great. Can I pause on that there and, and go back then? Um, you were born in 1969, which is the same year as the Troubles started. Uh, I mean, I'm not granny, suggesting granny there's a symmetry there. The, <laughs> the personality that, that we've, we've got, got to know so well over the last few decades and... And as you say, you have been yourself and, and you've lived a lot of, there's been a lot of different themes and stories in that time, indeed even over the last decade that we'll get to 
How much did that conflict shape you and the person you became? Well, it's very hard to say because you can't really separate yourself from the world that you're in. It was uh, exhilarating, scary, I suppose. I mean, very quickly, it was clear that my father was a person of interest to the state. You know, in our house, would have been raided, turfed out of bed. Um, there was a veil of secrecy around things. You know, there were comings and goings that we were just kept away from. And, you know, my uncle Eunan went to prison, went to long case and was on the blanket, you know. So at sort of 17, 18 years of age, he was, you know, um, daubing his own excrement on the walls of the cells, living in that sort of drastically inhumane situation for years. Nobody ever talked about that, you know. He smuggled small letters out in pieces of toilet paper, you know, that were very lengthy, and then they mm. were passed around. We all got to read them. And uh, whatever my father was involved in, he was involved in. You know, it was clear that he was a serious man. You knew that from everyone's reaction and the sort of people who were frequenting our home. And uh, it was clear that he was certainly looked up to as a leader. And in Dungiven itself, what happened was the community closed in on itself. So the Gaelic football and hurling thrived. Um, outsiders, you know, like whenever the Limavady Council would deliver the Christmas tree, like the Christmas tree would be... You know, all the lights would be taken off and everybody would have coloured lights in their kitchen and bathroom, you know, for the next six mm. months. Um, no agents of the state were welcome. You know, the old Ministry of Agriculture was blown up at the top of the town. And it was very normal for us to have that situation. You were constantly searched. There was constant sort of abuse back and forth. Soldiers were being blown up. Young police officers were being shot in the face. And... And so far as we were concerned as children, well, you know, this was um, this was the only possible response to what was happening to us, you know, because the state came down on us very heavily, obviously. And but chaos and violence was a state of was a normal state. Yeah, but because we were all in together, and then you know, we uh, the games were so important to us, and the community was all together. Mm. You weren't, you know. My granny lived opposite us. You know, my cousin Gary was one of the most cheerful people I knew, and he always had his speakers out the windowsill playing ACDC and Deep Purple. And, you know, it was all... We were free and easy in the town. You know, we were always in the football pitch. We were always having fun and all of that. But nighttime was scary, and obviously there were a lot of very, very serious things going on, you know, and... My father then was interned. So just one morning he was taken, they came in and took him. And he was never charged with anything. I mean, young people nowadays wouldn't believe it. He was taken away for three years and held in an internment camp outside Belfast. And uh, that was it. We saw him a few times during that period. And uh, then a knock, a knock came on our door one day after about three years 
because we had no phone, and it was the shopkeeper next door, and he says, Anne, you have to go and pick up Francie. He'd get a phone call to say, look, he's standing at Long Cash waiting to be picked up. And so he came home in triumph. That, that and sounds... I sat on his knee, yeah. Oxdale soup. I can still remember it. He got a tin of Oxdale soup. He loved Oxdale soup. And I sat on his knee in triumph, being fed it. He would take a spoonful, and then he would give me a spoonful. It was never mentioned again. You know, and then obviously he was arrested on and off and taken to Castlereagh, etc. And well, what do you remember that feeling like for you? See, first your house being overturned at night, your father taken away. Yeah. I mean, the sense of injustice at that, obviously internment, you know, to this day is a hugely emotive issue. Um, him coming back, him being him, him being taken away again. You know, I mean, see, everybody was in it together. You know, yeah. I mean, boys used to hide nurse. You knew they were hiding in ours. You know, they were coming in and they were staying for a night or two. And, you know, I mean, I remember, I remember a very young Martin McGuinness in our house and my mother putting a false moustache and beard on him. Mm. You know, and he was a student. And he was being driven across the border and the story was, I think the story was that he was a student in UCD. Now, I didn't know that that's who he was at the time. I only knew that afterwards whenever you could see in the television that this guy was, he was the guy, like, you know, Martin was a, a heroic figure. And, because uh, he was so tough. Uh, and we talked about this before the interview, and I think it's, it's something that I've thought about a lot. People like my father or Martin McGuinness, that, who would never, ever have been involved in violence. But some people, you know, um, a lot of people that I know, you know, older older people than me, who would never have been involved in violence, but whenever this happened, whenever this great darkness, you know, settled on the North, they discovered that they had a capacity for violence, that they were good at it. And, um, and so that's what happened. How does it colour your own feelings about your father now? Your father passed away last year, and you're a man who I, you, you've said you don't believe in the taking of life. Um, yeah. How do you how do you well, 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 see, reflect on all that? You know, my, my, I suppose in a way because he was away a lot, and because I then was sent to boarding school at the height of the troubles, and I was sent to St Pat's Armagh to get me offside. I'm assuming, you know, I mean, it was that was a big part of it. You know, and then we had the hunger strikes. We had two hunger strikers in Dungiven, which was a huge thing, and the place really went up. The hunger strikes, that was the end of it, you know. Mm. There was a feeling, look, this is going to be a fight to the bitter end now. You know, there's going to be a lot of death and a lot of mayhem. The hunger strikes, you know, were a huge, huge, huge event. And uh, I was away, and then I went to Trinity rather than Belfast, because obviously it was still going ding-dong then by 87. And, and so... And my father would have talked about the football and he would have told you funny anecdotes but we never talked about anything you know and, and he died a stranger to me you know and I to him I think um, that's it you know not coming from a sort of a warm loving family can have its benefits as well because it sort of throws you out into the world mm. to, 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 to probably take a more adventurous path and you live in your wits more and you probably take more risks and you're more 
free and sort of individual, but it has its downsides, you know I mean? Obviously, it's not easy to live in that environment and I suffered very greatly for years. Was it something that you uh, felt was a, a, an absence? No, well, I mean... You? <laughs> I mean, there's a literal absence of your father in your early years you're and, and you're guy, talking... You're like that famous American sports commentator that makes everybody cry, you know? <laughs> but, um, you know, Jerry Maguire, I'm definitely not crying. You know what I'm but, I mean, it was always a, a source of fascination to me that I gave a kidney to a stranger so excitedly. You know, it was something that I was so excited about. And if, if someone had said to me, look, this can't go ahead now, I would have been devastated. Mm. You know, and it had to take place in London. And I snuck around for six months getting tests without telling anybody. I didn't tell anybody. And it was exhilarating. You know, I suppose it would have been like, you know, having the greatest affair with someone who you were infatuated by. This was exhilaration. I remember going to London, you know, nobody even knew I was going to London. Got the flight in the morning, getting tests, coming back. Like, I could, you know, waves of euphoria that this was going to happen. And then it happened and I felt that way, you know, and afterwards I felt ecstatic, you know, like a sense of... And then, you know, I hit the wall shortly after that and obviously I think for years I had blocked out childhood. I couldn't even remember childhood properly, got my medical notes and records to look at the past, you know, because I was an abused child. And, uh, and then for the first time in my life, I seriously engaged with who I was. That sounds awful, mm. <laughs> wellness speak, but... And I realised soon after that the reason I'd given the kidney was to, I think, atone for... No, the, the taking of human life by people close to me. <laughs> sort of somehow make amends for that and to, I suppose, feel that I could breathe more easily then and uh, that I could uh, take my place and have some peace in society. Um, and so it was a big, as it turned out then, it, transformed me as a person and it made me lighter and found that I could find some peace and slow down and not constantly be trying to impress and trying to, you know, look what I can do. And uh, it's a very mysterious thing when you donate an organ like that because, you know, you get opened up and particularly where it's difficult to explain why you've done this for a stranger. It's a very mysterious thing that happens to you because I suppose it's a, it's the closest that you can get to, you know, you know the old line, greater love hath no man than to lay down his life mm. for his friend. And uh, there was that feeling of atonement that that's as much as I can do now for some of the terrible things that were done by those close to me and uh, 
And also, you, you then saw the suffering of people. And my journey then went to cystic fibrosis. I was immediately drawn to people with cystic fibrosis because at that point in time, it was being transformed over the last seven or eight years now with these wonder drugs that are coming in from uh, America. But at that time, you know, these people were suffering chronically. They weren't able to breathe. They lived in this cocoon. Their mother was the most important feature in their lives. I mean, the mothers didn't have a life. That was, that transfixed me. I saw these people in hospital. I mean, good f friends of mine, Gary Dillon and Gary Dempsey, both they were in rooms beside each other in St. Vincent's. And they talked about each other all the time. And it was about a year in before I realized they'd never met each other because of the risk of cross infection. And Gary, who's from Donegal, Gary Dempsey, uh, got a lung, got his lung transplant, his double lung transplant, and Gary Dillon didn't. So, you know, one dies, Gary from Sligo, one lives. And a few months later, myself and Gary Dempsey went to the All-Ireland Final, to the fateful 2014 All-Ireland Final, Donegal and Kerry, when the big keeper kicked the ball out to Kieran Donnelly. Remember it well. But, uh, so it was a, you know, it was a transform my life. And uh, you know, has been a, a big assistance to me I think to see the world mm. in a better way and to understand people better and to understand their plight and to... I mean, I was always, I think, an empathetic person and had a very humanitarian instinct. You know, I recoiled from violence and, you know... What always, was, e even as, as that was going on around you as a, as a young person? Yeah, well, a, you see, there was, a thing, there was a thing in the town that, you know... I mean, I think I've said this before, you know, the time that Earl Mountbatten was blown up it was right in the middle of the Troubles. A wild lot of injustice had been perpetrated and violence on our communities. And I remember whenever he was blown up, everybody was like... And obviously, as a child, we didn't know any better. You know, we're part of this thing. And, you know, it's a, it's a unified thing. I mean, there are no discordant voices. I mean, it was us against them, and that was that. There wasn't any alternative. Nobody well, could put their hand up and say, I'm not sure about this. Well, I mean, I was six or seven years of age, eight yeah. years of age, then went to St. Pat's Arman, you know. It, it was a more intellectual environment. And then went to Trinity. It was a very open debating environment. And I was shocked to, 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 to get to know people in the South, their attitude to the North. I was shocked. I was like, what? Did you find them decadent and blasé and... Well, I just thought... Un not thought understanding what was really going on or... or yeah, that, 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 that absolutely, but also then my, uh, my more uh, primitive opinions were, were torn apart. And then you, you began to see it all properly. You know, I think in the right way, the truthful, honest way. I mean, I think that... <laughs> in the South, sort of typical, I, I suppose, of you know, post-colonial societies, where the British would come conquer a society, and then part of it would get its freedom. Mm. South. And then they sit on their hands as the horrors unfold in the place that's still not free. And then there's a feeling of embarrassment almost like, and you know, you saw this whole orthodoxy started in the South that really it was the nationalists in the North who were to blame. 
it was the Catholics and the Nationalists, you know, who were to blame for what happened. You know, if they had just behaved themselves mm. and not worried about civil rights and not taken to the gun, you know, um, that, that everything would have been fine. And, you know, completely ignoring the realities of soldiers just coming in and machine gunning people to death and then walking away. I mean, Robert McCluskey was beaten to death in the door of Hassan's draper shop in Dungiven. Lost Lives has it as the first death of the Troubles. Robert John was about 67, he was a farmer, he was a bachelor, he was coming in to do his groceries and he would get a glass of stout and McGrennell's and he'd get his hair cut in Sean Doran's. And he was in the wrong place at the wrong time and he was beaten to death by the police in the doorway of Hassan's. Nobody was ever charged, nobody ever was ever questioned about it. He was buried, that was the end of it. Bloody Sunday, you know, it took 30 years when most of the boys were dead and nobody was prosecuted, you know, for them to say, oh, well, look, we're terribly sorry about that. Mm -hmm. You know, shouldn't have shot all those people. The Bala Murphy massacre, you know, and it's all over the place. I mean, a good friend of mine, John Finucane, his dad was just assassinated. His dad was a solicitor, you know, he was machine, machine gunned to death. And there's not a day goes by that, that John doesn't, you know, isn't obsessed as a 40-year-old man. It happened when he was six or seven. Mm. Obsessed with a tribunal, a public inquiry into this, you know. And there is a lot of that still in the North, you know, people still looking for answers. And I've seen this as a criminal lawyer, as a defence lawyer, you know, the family of a murdered girl or boy, the parents sit there chained to this tragedy in the courtroom. They don't even know why they're there and they'll sit there every single day suffering and suffering and suffering and suffering because at the end of it, you know, some comfort comes out of it. You know, if there's a conviction or if, as in the Bloody Sunday case, there was an apology eventually and the tribunal found in their favour, the family's favour. Everybody knew what happened. Everybody knew that was what was happening. But to actually hear that was such a relief to them. And it's amazing to me, even when we do know that you need that affirmation. But it is a very, very, very important thing. And so there was a huge amount of suffering in the North. And it just wasn't the lived experience of people in the South. People get on with their own lives. They've a lot to be worried about. You know, is she going to leave me? Mm -hmm. You know, can I get that job? Christ, am I going to lose my job? You know, you know you've got your senior championship team playing. You know, you have to go to the matches. You, know you had a different life from us. And I understand that entirely. Yeah. But it is important to have a true perspective on it. And I think it would do no harm if the schools in the South were taught properly about what happened in the North. From both sides. Mm. From both sides. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You, you said you were an uh, abused child. Do you mean physical abuse? physically, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Of the time. Yeah, you know, it would have been not a good situation. Yeah. And then a child doesn't know any better because the family's like a cult. It's normal, you know. Yeah. And uh, at home, yeah, you know. So what what you were doing with uh, after the kidney and and everything around that is is personal and personal and political, or personal and in in terms of what was going on. Yeah, because you just well. you it's, know it's uh, uh, human beings are fabulous actors. Yeah, you know what I mean. There's many today, I'm sure you've come in here, and the last thing you want <laughs> is to be going on telly, but you're, there we go. Mm. And, uh, and just like any actor on stage, we're very good actors, and you know, you, you, you reveal what you want to reveal about yourself, and you conceal yourself to protect yourself. I mean, for years, I used to have this thing, right, which went away after the kidney. Another important thing about that was that it, it gave me self-respect, and it gave me self-esteem, so like, I'm as good as anybody, you know. Don't question me. You know, I am a person to be, you know. Um, I'm worthy to take myself, you know, to, to, to be sort of counted amongst, alongside other people. You know, uh, I'm not less than anyone else and I'm not inferior to anyone else. And there would have been a very strong part of me up on all that that was like that. For years, I'll give you an example. <laughs> Please say, like, they would say, like, it's unbelievable how combative you are in court. Right. And that is true. I can be, and I have absolute confidence in court. I mean, I could leave a witness for 60 seconds without saying anything to them at the start of a cross-examination. You know, and the judge knowing not to interrupt. You know, and choreographing everything around that. You know, because the art of persuasion is choreography. Mm. The judge, the jury, the witness your opponent. And in a way, I would sort of set a, set a stage that they'll come into. I'll, I've set the stage. And if it requires ferocious you know, combat, well then, I'll do that. It'll be very quiet, you know, can alternate the mood. It's something that I can do. And I was always attracted to the fact that I could do that and be so intimately involved with someone's life and then they'd be acquitted, you know, and their life has flashed before their eyes and their family are jubilant and they're hugging. And I walk out of that courtroom and no one even says, thank you. You're the invisible man, you're gone. You're playing a role mm. and you're gone. And for most of my adult life up until the last seven or eight years, that's what I was doing, I think, in my real life as well. It wasn't real. People say, how are you doing? Brilliant, but a story I was gonna tell you. For years, if someone raised their voice to me outside court, as an opponent would, you may be talking about something, you might get animated, you know I would immediately flinch thinking they're about to hit me. I would feel you're gonna hit me now. I could feel it viscerally as if it was happening. And I would have to breathe and say, look, they're not going to hit me, you know. Wouldn't matter whether it was a woman or a man. Wouldn't make any difference. I would feel I'm about to get hit, you know. Or another, another thing, another recurrent thing that I had for years. I don't know, I think it was Woody Allen said, you should never do your therapy in public, but anyway. 
you've got another study golf face. <laughs> so I used to think that people were going to spit on me. You know, if, they, if there was a bit of tension in a discussion, I would feel, I would flinch. They're going to spit on me. You know, that you were so, that you were so less than others that, that that's how you could be treated. Mm. And that would be okay. You know. And some years ago, one of my aunts who I adore said to me, you know, she said like, We should have taken you out of there. We should have taken you out of there. Just I always regret that, you know. But you see, it was very different then. You know, you weren't. Yeah. Nowadays, like teachers would make reports, and social workers would be involved, and police would be involved. And said, there was no. There wasn't that. We lived in a cult, and particularly with the troubles, like we were in a cult, and the agents of the state were like from the TV license man, mm. you know. Nobody came into the town, you know. The van would have been burnt, they'd have been kicked out of the place, you know. There were no agents of the state and we had nothing to do with the cops, like you never spoke to police. I mean, the police were untermensch. They weren't allowed in the shops, you know. They, they simply were untermensch, you know. And, um, and so there wasn't any sense of that. And then my old boy was a hero, really, in the town. He was a hero, you know. It's like, and he was a great community man, great GA man, all those things, you know. You know, everybody loved my mother. She was a teacher in the school. You know, they were heroes. She's like, what do you do? Like, it's difficult to figure it out for yourself, isn't it, when you're five? Hmm. Can I ask you about, about um, part of your role as a commentator in, in recent years in terms of columns and, and public speaking has, has, has really been a lot around the future of Northern Ireland. Like you have, you have taken a big interest and involvement and in, in naturally um, in, in where it's going and where it's been over the last few years. Um, you know, you once said you're a dreamer, you're a romantic. Do you, do you dream of a united Ireland? No, I, I don't at all. I mean, I think we should be blind to, to nationality, blind to sexuality, blind to religion. You know, uh, in the end, the important thing is is empathy, goodness, all those sorts of qualities, you know, um, honesty, courage. And so it doesn't matter to me what form Northern Ireland or the north of Ireland takes. And I think that the problem now is that the, the opportunity to create a secular, shared Northern Ireland was squandered. The DUP were in the driving seat. You know, they were essentially... A, 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 the party of a megalomaniac, Ian Paisley Senior, you know, who destroyed the first power sharing agreement, brought down the Sunningdale Agreement, the Ulster Workers' Strike, lambasted the Anglo-Irish Agreement, brought hundreds of thousands of people out onto the street to say never, never, never. A, a, a foundation, a movement built on no. You know, and then destroyed David Trimble when he signed the peace process. And then having destroyed Trimble and called him a traitor for doing it, they promptly took their seats in Stormont and then Ian Paisley Sr. became the first minister because a megalomaniac is only interested in himself. And then when the opportunities were there to create a thriving secular Northern Ireland, bringing goodwill from Europe, from America, a shared society, that was all squandered. And I thought there was an opportunity for that. That's been squandered. So now what Would you're you looking at... Would you have been happy with a situation like that? Yeah, well, yeah. 
Yeah, as long as, you know, as long as there's fairness and, and equality, which there is, mm. you know. Young Protestant people aren't interested mm. in creationism. You know, I mean, Edwin Putz was elected. He believes that the world was made in se seven days. So these guys Six eventually days. be marginalised and, you know, and eventually yeah, die out, Yeah, you know, right? and, and, you know, their, their attacks on, on, on same-sex, their racism. But the point is this, that young Protestant people now, and in a, and in a well-educated society, are, are disaffected by that. And we see this in the DUP's poll numbers going down. And although we're segregated because of our education system in the North, and, I mean, my children, for example, wouldn't really know any Protestants. I've got to know a lot of Protestant people because of the organ donation stuff and because of my work. Mm. And so, you know, the, obviously, the organ donation campaign depends on cross-community support. And, and you know, there, there, there can't be any question of sectarianism. And it seems to me that the best solution is probably going to be enforced on us. That the truth is that the, that the British sort of conglomerate of Scotland, Wales, England and the North is starting to fall apart anyway. Scotland are going to be looking for independence mm. very, very soon. I imagine there'll be an independence vote there within 10 years, which will be for, which will be for independence. England is becoming increasingly xenophobic. They have no interest in the North anyway. I mean, it's a millstone around their necks. So what, what we could probably start with is a two-state solution in the North, where the North would have its own independent parliament, have tax-raising powers, and we'd be able to harness massive goodwill from Europe and from America. We don't need big sums of money to keep us going. It's a very, very small country. And you're talking about, well, a million and a half people. So it means it's a, it's a, it's a very, very small country. And so you start with a two-state solution. And I think that necessarily the first important thing would be to have a, a vote in the North on, on um, rejoining the European community. That would be very welcome. Of course, it would bring... Mm. South and North together, being that we're one physical entity. And after that, I would just leave it. So you'd have a two-state solution to start with. Over time, as all that old ridiculous sectarianism dies away and all the wounds in the North start to heal, as they have been doing, and the younger generations who are not interested in any of this nonsense are only interested in a practical way, how do we, how do we, how do we put bread on the table, all the normal questions. How do we want to live? You know, we want same-sex marriage. We want to, to have liberal, liberal values in our society, which we do want in the North. Mm. And so you could then see over a period of time that, they, that, that, that people would probably decide, well, look, there's not much point in having two separate um, states here. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if within 20 years there were, there were some sorts of moves towards unification. But I think that it's important that in the South there's a very light touch towards that. Southern governments are making the right sounds. You know, look, it's a matter for the people of the North yeah. if, effectively. Um, I have to say, I think that as, uh, if, if it were properly worked out, we were back in the European community, um, it could work very well financially from every possible perspective, it could work very well. Ever 
ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 